You may be seated. As you're doing that, if you wouldn't mind turning to Matthew chapter 18 as we continue our look at Matthew. We are moving into the 18th chapter. My name is uh, John. I am the pastor at the Gladstone campus just across the river. Um, and I've been asked by Pastor Scott to come and share uh, this morning uh, as covering for him as he's on his sabbatical. So let's begin by reading Matthew 18, verses 1 through 9. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone, a great millstone, fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Not necessarily a passage that you see on a lot of coffee cups or t-shirts, but one that is here for a reason, and so let's try to figure that out. So I started off and I was thinking about this, and I, I, was, I was thinking how great it would be if we had some way of settling some of, the, of life's biggest debates. You know those things we argue about that drive wedges in families, things that split friendships? maybe even put marriages on the rocks. You know, those debate questions like Coke versus Pepsi or Ford versus Chevy or LeBron versus Michael Jordan, DC versus Marvel, Beyonce versus Taylor Swift. I mean, these are some of those big questions that it would sure be nice if somebody could come in and tell us really who's the best. Who's the greatest? Now, honestly, I, you know, I think about it, and I'd like, I would love for someone to come in and just tell us what criteria we should use and then just kind of settle it for us. Now, uh, the Internet does help with this. There are countless YouTube videos about why this is the best and that's the best, and I may or may not have wasted a few minutes, hours on that. But what's the real debate behind the debate? What makes someone great? When you think about it like with actors, if we were to say, who are the greatest actors? How could we come up with a criteria to help us get it? Is it who makes the most money? Is it who gets the most awards? Is it some other criteria? Wouldn't it be great if someone could come in and say, this is the only criteria that matters, so there you go. Well, Jesus wasn't necessarily talking about actors, but the disciples came to Jesus and asked him who was the greatest. What they were doing was they weren't just asking who's number one, but they were also asking, how do you, how do you decide? What's your criteria? 
I mean, they've already figured out this Jesus was somebody special. He's doing miracles. He's the Messiah. He says he's the Son of God. This is a big deal. So maybe his criteria are the ones we should use to decide who's the greatest. His ranking system, by default, should be way superior to ours. So in verse 1, it says, At that time, this is as Peter is going to get the fish and get the coin out of it, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So remember, we, we look back and they've, they've come off the mountain, the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John saw Jesus in all of his glory. They come down, they have a little squabble, a little discussion, and then a tax collector shows up and Peter goes and gets this fish. And it says in Mark that they were arguing about who's the greatest. They were fighting amongst themselves. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? And in here we get the question, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Seems like a pretty good question. They were debating. They wanted an answer. They went to the one who has the answers. However, Jesus doesn't answer the question the way they expected. I know, not a surprise. Jesus didn't do what the disciples expected. Look at verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put the, him, the child, in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's what Jesus does. They're saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus goes, wait, what makes you think you're in the kingdom? You you need to be in the kingdom before you can be the greatest. See, what these disciples are doing is they're planning the all-star game. And Jesus is saying, you need to first make the team. Don't be planning your big palace And all of these awards you're going to get if you're not even in the kingdom. Look at what he says. He says, you will never enter the kingdom. So he's saying, you have to do this to get in. Forget greatness. First, get into the kingdom. So how does Jesus teach this? Well, he teaches it with an object lesson. Jesus does this pretty regularly. Has something in front of them and says, let's look at this. So what does he do here? He pulls a child. Now, this word child in the Greek means a child two years or younger. So you can imagine the picture, Jesus and these 12 disciples, and he grabs this child and he puts the child right in the middle. And you know, parents, that that child didn't stay sitting in the middle and crawling all over the place, cooing, making sounds, and so on, right? That's what children do. This baby is looking up at the God of the universe in flesh. How cool is that, that Jesus uses a baby to teach? Jesus says, look here at this child. See what this child looks like? This is what you need to look like. This is what you need to be like to be in my kingdom. And he says, turn, unless you turn. What is he saying? He's saying convert. That's the word repent, to turn away. He's saying, stop being what you are. Stop worrying about your prestige, your awards. Instead, turn and become like this child. Humble yourself. See, all of our relationship with Jesus starts with conversion. It starts with a change. It starts with a turn. It must start with a turn because the kingdom of God is not a place that we're all on the default setting to. Nobody is born a Christian. Nobody gets to be a Christian just because of what their parents did, where they grew up. Instead, we need a complete change. We don't have the faith. We don't have the fear of God. We don't have the love we need to choose him. We must be born again. 
We're utterly unfit for God's presence. And so we need a new heart. Whether you're old, young, rich, poor, doesn't matter where you're born, you all are children of wrath. We must be made new. So this is what Jesus is talking about. So we can't get past that turn word. If you've just been on this path your whole life and there's no change, then you need to go, I need that change. That's what Jesus is telling them here. And let's skip down to the end of verse 3. He says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a Greek word. It's an emphatic double negative, which sounds really cool. But I'll give you the translation. You will never, ever, 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 ever enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what this means. There's, there's no exception. It's like, you will never enter, but, oh, oh, he will. Or, you will never enter, but eventually might. He's saying, unless you become like a child, you cannot ever enter my kingdom. See, Jesus has no problem with greatness. He just redefines it. He says, greatness is being the least. The nature of greatness in Christ's kingdom is the utterly different than any idea of greatness our world has. You find someone who's great in our world and they're the first to tell you about it. In Christ's world, it's the exact opposite. He says, become like children. Children in this day and age and in our day and age, they have nothing to brag about. They have no marketable skills. They have nothing to say, this is why I'm the best. They have nothing to boast about. And that's just like us. We have nothing to boast about except for the sins that sent Jesus to the cross. See, our, our entrance into the kingdom of heaven is based on our childlikeness, our, our willingness to say, I can't earn this. I can't do it. See, most kingdoms of the world, you, you get into them by being something special or by defeating your opponents or by having a certain level that you've hit. Kingdom of heaven is the exact opposite. It's about being humble. It's about being lower. Recognizing our powerlessness and our circumstances is putting us in touch with reality. It's letting us see the world as it truly is. Now, there have been people that have taken this childlikeness and kind of run a direction that's not biblical. The first way they have done this is someone will say, hey, you know, that little child that Jesus had there, he doesn't understand things like, you know, the Bible. He doesn't do Bible studies. So I'm not going to do that. Jesus said, be like a child. So there we go. I'm just going to stay with the childish things and I'm good. The thing is, Jesus doesn't say, have a childish faith. He says, have a childlike faith. And what that means is it's a, it's a mindset, not a depth of knowledge. And we see this elsewhere. The Apostle Paul cautions against this in 1 Corinthians 14. When he says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. So he's saying, don't be childish, but be childlike. And a child recognizes how weak and frail he or she is. A child recognizes that that loud sound was something outside of his or her control, and she needs help. The second misunderstanding people have is one that I, I don't really understand, but they have, and that's that children are innocent. That as if children are just this innocent thing, and then eventually we get polluted, but that's not supported both by what the Bible says and also by the twos and threes class down the, down the stairs, right? 
I mean, if you want to see crazy Wild West kids sinning, you go to the twos and threes class, right? You've got the, the two-year-olds and then the three-nagers. So this idea that there's some children ideal here is not what this text is about. Instead, it's about changing our mindset on how we see the world. We must have that change. We must have that conversion. And this is a good thing that we're talking about this today. It's a good thing that Jesus brought this out because if there's one place where I know I've struggled, and some of you may have struggled as well, it's, am I saved? Assurance of salvation is something that's hard sometimes. And it's not because we look at Jesus and go, well, I don't know if he died for my sins. Maybe he died for those other guys. But when we look to Jesus sometimes and we see something like, you know, I have these sins that won't go away. Or I've been praying these prayers and they don't seem to be getting through. Am I not a part of your family, Lord? And so passages like this where Jesus says, you must turn, and then says, this is what it looks like to turn, is meant to encourage us to go, if this is what it's looking like in me, then I am a part of the family. I am a part of his crew. I'm not somebody out there hoping to get in. So we know our conversion is true if we show the fruit of it. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, and whoever loses life for my sake will find it. If we have a life that is, is, is characterized by humility and the opposite of self-exaltation and no pride, then it's to show us, hey, we are converted. The Holy Spirit is doing a work. Because humility is not the default setting of us humans. Instead, pride is. So praise the Lord that verse 4 comes along because he says, be childlike, right? That we, we, would, we would mess that up. We'd be all running around with binkies and diapers or something and some weird church thing. But instead he says, childlike, and let me tell you what that is. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child, again, he's pointing at it, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humbles. Humbling means to be put in a low position. The English word for humble comes from a word, you all know it as food, but the English word means clay. It's the word hummus. It means dirt. It means clay. So someone who humbles himself is someone who's down so low they're in the dirt. And see, here's the thing. Humility is key to the gospel. Now, when we talk about the gospel, we hear that word a lot. It means the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place to take away our sins. And so humility and the gospel go hand in hand. Because what humility is, is humility is me going, oh my gosh, that's God? And this is me? I need to change what I'm doing because this isn't working. I'm not God. You're not God. The other people that have claimed they're not, their God is not God. That's God, and I need to worship him. So humility is the correct response to the reality that you're not God. It's the correct response to the reality that God sent his son to die for you. A helpful way to understand this is what Andrew Murray says in his book, Humility. He says there's three reasons we should be humble. The first is you didn't make yourself. None of us made ourselves. We didn't choose where we were born. We didn't choose what time, what year, to what family, what continent, what socioeconomic. We didn't choose any of it. What talents did you choose? 
We weren't up there in heaven going, "Mm, I think I want that one, and I'll do that one. Didn't work that way. You had no choice of where you were born. So be humble. Second reason to be humble is you're a sinner. You're a rebel. You're a transgressor. You worship false gods. When we were laying out what we bring to the table, right? When you sit down in a group and you're like, all right, let's talk about what we all bring to the table. If, if Jesus was to sit down with you and say, okay, come on, give me what, what, what have you brought to the table to help the church? Like, oh, here's my sins. That's all you got. That's all you bring to the table is the sins that require Jesus to go to the cross. And then once we bring those, then the Lord's free to use us. So the only thing we have is we have a fallen humanity. The third thing we have, reason to be humble, is grace. There's not a single person in this room who's earned their right to grace. Grace is free. Grace is a gift. Grace is getting something we can never deserve. Do you realize that if you only sinned one time, it's enough to send Jesus to the cross? And if you worked your entire life to try to pay off that one sin, your life's not long enough. That's how egregious a single drop of sin is compared to the pure God that we worship. This is to humble us. It's to point us to the fact that what we deserve is death. But praise be to God, he didn't leave us there. He came and he grabbed hold of us. So we need to see the universe rightly. When we see the universe with a childlike humility, we see the world as it actually is. When we see it, we see the gospel rightly. And this humility helps us. Because if I think I can solve all my problems, where am I not going with my problems? I'm not going to God. I think I've got it. But when I go, I can't solve anything, I need your help, Lord. That solves the problem there. When I think I'm the best thing that's ever happened to the universe, and all my friends should be really happy to be a part of my orbit... There's no way there's any kind of a positive relationship with me and my neighbor, with me and my family, with me and my friends. So humility works horizontally and it works vertically at the same time. So Jesus, as the master teacher, wants to give us a picture of what this humility looks like. So look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, this child he's talking about is the one who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the one who has humbled himself. So what he's saying here is he's saying, when you receive each other, now that word receive means welcome. It means having them be a part of what you're doing. When you welcome someone into this church, when you welcome someone into your house, into a relationship, into community, you are welcoming in Christ. You are caring for them because you care for Christ. Matthew 25, verse 40, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did to the least of my brothers, you did it to me. This is a good thing. See, what did we do to earn Jesus' love? Nothing. So what can people around us do to earn our love, to earn our humility, our, our, our hospitality? The answer is nothing. See, the way the world used to work, and it still does, but the way it worked at this point was, yeah, there were very hospitable people but it was always people that could benefit you. So they'd be going, oh, you know, oh man, that guy drives a really nice chariot. It would look so good in my driveway. I should invite him over for dinner. And then all my friends are going to see that chariot and they'll be like, yeah. 
right? Or you go, oh, he owns that business that I wanted to work with. Come have dinner with me. We'll become friends. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. But to be a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, is to go, I was accepted by the God of the universe for nothing I brought to the table, so I'm going to accept whomever comes in the door. I'm going to welcome in whomever, no matter what they can or can't do for me. That's what it means to be humble. That's what it means to show hospitality. In other words, when we embrace each other, when we embrace each other, we are embracing Christ. We're welcoming them. I mean, and, and we do this here, don't we? We do this. We have life groups. We invite people in. We get together. We eat meals, right? And that's all exciting, and we're all for that. I mean, who's not for sitting around eating food? I mean, come on. But there's more to it than that. What if we started thinking a little bit differently about our hospitality? What if we started thinking about it in light of this entire passage? Because the second half of this passage is hard. Let's just be honest. This whole millstone thing and cutting off things is hard. It's all about holiness. It's all about righteousness, being right with God. What if our hospitality changed and instead of just having a good time and eating food and yeah, we talk about the passage and all that, what if we changed it and said, let's start pushing each other towards holiness? Think about this, Hebrews 10. The author of Hebrews has this to say. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider, so let us think deeply how to stir one another up to love and good works. That word stir is the word spur, like the spurs on a horse. You know, you kick the horse and the horse goes faster. Let's spur one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Still can have food, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Think about how that would change how we do life groups and Bible studies and lunch meetings and coffee, t- coffee dates and walks with friends that are believers? What if we started thinking about how can we stir one another up to holiness, to Christ-likeness? Now, Jesus is going to give us a negative example of that right here. Jesus is going to go, I I want you all to be hospitable, and let me tell you what hospitable is not like. And so this next section, this this verse 6, this is hard. We, We think about this with temptations, and we, we really lessen. And really, the, the thing I think we do that is a key to today's sermon is we lessen two things. We lessen our temptations, and we lessen our sins. Like, we, we say ours aren't that bad. We, we push them down. We say something like, it's harmless. It's not affecting anybody, right? It's just a little gossip. It's just a little slander. It's just a little harmless thought. Just... Just flitting through my head, no big deal. And that's not even including the ones that we think no one sees, but are affecting us and the people around us. The porn usage, the lusting, the coveting, the bitterness, all of these things that we think we're getting away with, when in actuality, it's overflowing to those around us. Jesus wants us to see how big sin is. So we're meant to be shocked by these next few verses. They're graphic, they're grotesque. They're meant to warn us if we know Jesus as our Savior and go, this sin thing that I'm dabbling in, this is dangerous. And it's meant for those of you that are here that don't know Jesus and go, wait, that stuff is sin? I didn't even know, and I'm still in it? 
This is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of heaven and hell for both you and others. Look at verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Notice he changes little ones. That just means not just infants, but now all children. This is not, again, dealing with actual age. This is dealing with all of us. We're all at different levels of maturity. It means if you're a more mature believer, don't lead us a lesser mature believer away. He says, for those who believe in me. The word believe in me here is a, is a movement. It's a continuous belief. So this is not a one-time belief. It's they've been believing. Don't lead them astray. Don't cause them to sin. He says a great millstone. This, would, this is a heavy millstone about the size of a Volkswagen bug. It's a circle that was used to crush the grain. A donkey would pull it. And so imagine this visual here. You, you take a chain and you put it around the person's neck and then you drop them into the deepest part of the ocean and they speed to the bottom as fast as they can go. And we would go, what's the big deal, Jesus? I mean, come on. They're just too sensitive. They, they've got a problem. They, they, it's their sin. It's not mine. I didn't make them do it. They're, they're free. They can do what they want. Jesus is saying, do you understand that it's better for you to be dead than to lead someone astray? That's how serious I take sin. That's what Jesus is saying here. You see that? He's saying it would be better for you to be dead and not able to do another good thing than to lead someone astray. Jesus' warning here reveals that we take sin too lightly. It reveals that we're imperfect, that we must constantly be going and seeing, where am I with the Lord? Am I causing my brother to stumble? Christ takes it very seriously. Not only does he take it very seriously here, but he's going to take it so seriously that he's going to die for these sins. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. This is really a restatement of verse 6. That word woe means what sorrows await. Like, this is bad news. So if the gospel is, hey, good news, woe is, no, this is bad. This is bad news. And yes, it's inevitable. Temptations are going to come, but don't let them come from you. See, humility recognizes I'm not as good as I think I am. I'm not as pure as I think I am. And I, I can't muddle through all of this. Mostly what I'm going to do is I'm going to mess it up without the Spirit in me. And so we need to constantly be returning to the Lord and going, Lord, where do I need to be with this? Where do I need to go? What do I need to say? So let's, let's turn this positive, because Jesus is saying a very negative here. Let's turn it positive. What would this look like positively? I mean, how do I know if someone's tempted by something? I can't read their mind. So let's turn this positive. Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten us. Here's the crazy part, right? So we're all Christians. If we're all Christians and we're together and I'm doing something that's causing you to stumble, there is a one that knows your heart and speaks to mine. The Holy Spirit will enlighten us. And you guys know what that's like. Sometimes the Lord just shows you something and you're like, whoa, okay, I didn't know that. So that's the first thing we need to do. We need to ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, help me not be a stumbling block to those around me. And then the second thing is, get into a relationship with that person. Get to know them. 
Find out who they are, what they struggle with. Pray for them. Remember what Hebrews 10 said? We just read that. Stir one another up to good works. You can't stir up one another if you're not around one another. So understand this hospitality. Okay, so we've made it through the first seven verses. And so far we've got don't sin and don't cause others to sin. Got it. Check. Got it off the list. But unfortunately, uh, we need to continue into verses 8 and 9. So Jesus does not stop here. He takes it and makes it even more serious. So serious, in fact, that some church fathers have taken this a little too literally. There were whole groups of monks to fight off the, 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 the urge to lust. They cut out their eyes. Ironically, they still lusted. There were others that cut off other things. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. But he does want us to see how serious this is. See, sin is a cancer. Sin is a cancer that leads to pride, and that pride leads us to go outside the kingdom and want to be anywhere else. And Jesus is saying, you cannot let this be the case. Let this land on us. Jesus is talking about you and me. Verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown in eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes be thrown into the hell of fire. This is almost word for word what we saw in Matthew 5 when Jesus was talking about sexual sins. All he does here is removes the word sexual and says all sins. Jesus has just made it more difficult. So this is what we call a metaphor. Jesus is giving us a word picture. We know it's a metaphor because, like I said a second ago, cutting off an arm is not going to stop you from having impure thoughts. Cutting off an arm is not going to stop you from bitterness, from hate, from lust, and so on. So we know it's a metaphor, but isn't this hyperbole? Hyperbole is the exaggerated statement to make a point. I don't think it is. Yes, it's a metaphor, but what Jesus is saying is, this is an extreme situation, extreme danger. And extreme danger requires an extreme measure to escape. He's saying you may need to radically, painfully amputate things out of your life in order to escape falling headlong into sin. But see, here's the root problem. The root problem is that sin's root is in our hearts. We are the problem. I mean, really the only way to end sin is to just have us cease to exist. But praise be to God that Christ came and said, I have a better solution. I'm not going to destroy you. I'm going to revive you. I'm going to give you life anew. So these disciples are told to radically reject all that leads to evil. Why? Because sin is like an animal crouching at the door, Genesis 4-7. It wants to devour us. And the only way to live is when holiness takes over, Hebrews 12, 14. So we need to see this rightly. So I was asking myself, okay, Lord, what, what, what is this all about? Like, what is this whole cutoff thing and all that? And I, and I want to say, sin needs to be terrifying to us. It needs to bother us. It needs to not be something we flirt with. 
You know, if Jesus were speaking to children, I know I have some in the room, Jesus would say, sin's a monster. And the kids would go, got it. Because you know what they do? They imagine the monster, right? They're imagining what they imagine under the bed. They're imagining scales and horns and fangs and fur and whatever, right? They're not imagining a cute little cuddly. But we as adults, we do not do this. We go, ah, there's no monsters. There's no monsters. And as a matter of fact, you know, if sin's a monster, mine, yeah, it's not that big of a monster. It's a little monster, no big deal. I love how we automatically go to uh, reductio ad, ad Hitler, right? That's uh, the argument that says, well, at least I'm not as bad as Hitler, right? We do that with our sins. We say, well, I'm not as bad as, or I'm not as bad as this person. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus isn't saying, well, if you're doing the really bad sins, you need to cut stuff off. He's saying, no, a single solitary dab of sin needs to be cut off, needs to be destroyed. Look at the imagery here, right? Engulfed in flame, engulfed in water as you are speeding to the bottom. Do we see this? Do we see it rightly? I don't think we do. I take my nine-year-old son and I, I take a minute and I describe for him what it would be like to have a millstone on his neck and describe the feelings that he would feel as he went deeper and deeper into pitch black darkness, as the water crushes him, as his lungs begin to scream and burn for air and they take salt water in and they burn and he dies from inside out. I'm telling you, I'm not gonna win dad of the year if I tell that to my son. If I talk to him about, hey, you remember that time when you put your hand in the fire and you got that little burn? Well, you know, Jesus is talking about you going in there and every time it gets better, just keep burning and burning and burning for all of eternity. See, that's going to terrify my kid, isn't it? It's going to terrify him. He's going to go, that's awful. I would not want to do that. And that's the purpose of this. Does hell have fire? I don't know. But Jesus is saying, this is the worst and it's worse than that. And this is what sin does. This is what sin earns. And yet we go, ah, not that bad. Just a little fill in the blank. Jesus is saying, you need to be terrified. You need to see how serious I take this. And Jesus is walking to the cross. That's the picture of how serious he takes it. But here he's giving us another glimpse of it. Yes, sin is bad in this life, but it's even worse in the next. This is a wake-up call. What is our relationship to sin? What, what is your relationship to sin? One of the Puritans, John Owen, famously said, you need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And see, there's a trap here. As we've read through all this and I've explained to you how bad sin is, the trap that we all want to fall into the disciples fell into it, and some of you have fallen into it this morning, is the trap of missing the point. The point here is not about cutting off body parts. The point here is not about try harder to beat sin. It's not, okay, I, I, know, I know what Pastor John's going for. I need to go home and I need to delete these apps. I need to go home and I need to block these friends. I need to go home and I need to remind myself not to say or think these thoughts. You see what you all just did there when we do that? That's the cutting off the arm solution. That's the gouging out the eye solution. And Jesus is saying, that 
you're missing the point. If you don't see how grand, how incredibly awful sin is, you won't see how great the sacrifice on the cross was for it. Jesus is saying, you're missing the point if you think you can deal with sin. Now, does that mean that those things that we talked about just a second ago shouldn't happen? Absolutely not. If the Lord tells you to get rid of a friend, get rid of a friend. If the Lord says, get rid of an app, if the Lord says, you need to just do something radical, do it. But understand that if your heart does not change, nothing's going to change. The sin's still going to come back. You're the blind monk who's still lusting even though he has no eyes to look on a woman. We cannot defeat the monster that is sin. We cannot do it because we see sin too small and we see our Savior too small. We need to return to the childlike understanding that says, Daddy, I can't do it. I need your help. I need you as a Savior. I need someone greater. And praise be to God that we have a good King. We have a good Savior who says, I'm not going to leave you on your own and trying to effort this out. I'm going to come in and I'm going to give you a new heart. Ezekiel 36, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put into you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. We can cut off arms, we can gouge out eyes, but if we don't have a new heart, there will be no change. We need to trust Jesus. He's the one that's already killed sin and the repercussions of sins. He's defanged them. The power of Satan is gone, and it's a mop-up operation in our lives. He is here to help us defeat sin. How does he do it? Romans 8.13 tells us, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you do it in your own power. But by the Spirit, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You can't see how in deep into you the sin is, but he can. And he is the one capable of killing it. First, we must see it for what it is. And then we must turn and return to the childlike faith that we need to have that says, Jesus, I can't do it. I need your help. These sins are still getting me. I need your help. Remember, Jesus took sin very seriously. It's what put him on the cross. This is our true condition. We must take sin seriously. The first way to do that is to turn and repent. Confess it. Ask for the help that you need. And then once you do that, keep your eyes constantly on him. There's no pride when you're at the foot of the cross looking up at your Savior who died for you in your place. There is only humility. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are in desperate need of more of you. We are in desperate need of seeing you rightly, being in touch with reality, the reality of we are so far from you without your Son. So Lord, I pray that right now as we remember his death on the cross in our place, that you would do a work in each of our hearts. Remind us of our trust that we had in you or build that up and grow that in us to start with, Lord. Help us to draw nearer to you. In your name, amen.